Turn in your Bible to Revelation 11, Revelation chapter 11. Since we're coming off of a long break, uh, kind of clarify again. Uh, what, what I try to do is I try to open your brain a little, make you think a little. You never have to agree with me or see it the way I see it. I just try to give it to you the way I see it, and then you can go home and study and determine what you want to believe. Remember we did land on this when we started about 12, 13 weeks ago. We landed on that with every chapter that we're diving into, there will always be people that believe just the opposite. Um, from the rapture to Jesus to the kingdom, uh, there's plenty of YouTube videos to keep you busy wherever you want to go. And so what I decided to do was, rather than going and just teaching other people's stuff and downloading it, I figured it's already out there on YouTube. You could do that. That what I would try to do is give it to you from my perspective and hopefully create some new ways to think about it. And I hope I've done that so far. I've ho I hope I've open some thinking to the book of Revelation. If nothing else, I hope that I've made it interesting for you to want to read it and not be afraid to read it. So let's jump right in, 19 verses. Let's read the whole thing, and then um, we will go for it. And I believe it's going to be good. Put on your thinking cap because it's going to be deep. All right, so we'll see if we can't make some sense out of it. And then I was given a measuring stick, and I was told, go and measure the temple of God in the altar and count the number of worshipers. But do not measure the outer courtyard, for it's been turned over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will be clothed in burlap and prophesied during those 1260 days. These two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord God of all the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire flashes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. And this is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. They have power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. And they have the power to turn the rivers and the oceans into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. When they complete their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit will declare war against them, and he will conquer them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the main street of Jerusalem, the city that is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, the city where their Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, all peoples, tribes, languages, and nations shall stare at their bodies. No one will be allowed to bury them. All the people who belong to this world will gloat over them and give presents to each other to celebrate the death of the two prophets who have tormented them. But after three and a half days, God breathed life into them and they stood up. Terror struck all who were staring at them. Then a loud voice from heaven called to the two prophets, Come up here. And they rose to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. At the same time, there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city. 7,000 people died in that earthquake, and everyone else was terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second terror is past, but look, the third terror is coming quickly. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices shouting in heaven. The world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders sitting on their thrones before God fell with their faces to the ground and worshiped him. And they said, give thanks to you. We give thanks to you, Lord God, the Almighty, the one who is and who always was. For now you have assumed your great power and you have begun to reign. The nations were filled with wrath, but now the time of your wrath has come. It's time to judge the dead and reward your servants, the prophets, as well as your holy people. And all who fear your name, from the least to the greatest, it is time to destroy all who have caused destruction on the earth. Then, in heaven, the temple of God was opened, and the ark of his covenant could be seen inside the temple. Lightning flashed, thunder crashed and roared, and there was an earthquake and a terrible hailstorm. Can you say amen to that, reading of the Bible? So, so I want to try to make this chapter meaningful and pull together a ton of scripture from Old and New Testament and wrap it up to where you could walk out and go, I have a purpose on my life. Uh, it's difficult to understand in which way I wanted to go and praying about what way to go. 
Do we talk about the witnesses? Do we talk about being called up to heaven? What's going on in heaven? I do want to make a comment real quickly, though, because people have asked me all the time what I think, so I figured I would just throw out a thought and an opinion of what I think. I get asked often, who are the two witnesses? Uh, I love my mom's answer the best. The Bible doesn't tell us, so quit trying to figure it out. <laughs> That's just a great out when you have no clue what to talk about. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say, so neither am I going to say. But I just hate that. I like to know, so I dig and I hunt and I dig, and I usually never find the answer, but it's fun anyway. It's fun to go mining it out. But uh, I've landed, this is what I believe. I'm probably wrong, but I feel like I believe it, and I could eat some soup on it. I feel like the two witnesses are Elijah and Enoch. And here's why I believe it's Elijah and Enoch, because they're the only two people that the Bible lends to that have lived but have never died. So Elijah was taken up in a chariot, and Enoch was caught up to God. He walked with God and was no more. He just was gone. So this is weird. There are two people right now in the eternal realm who in some weird way still have fleshly, earthly bodies and have never died. And that's just spooky to me that they're there. But here's what the Bible says in the book of Hebrews. Just as each person is destined to die once and then judgment. And I believe that God has pulled these two people off the earth because these are the two that are going to come back and be killed for the testimony of God. And they will fulfill the scripture that every person here is destined to die once. And so I believe they'll come back and they'll have to fulfill the prophecy of God. Otherwise, we've got a major problem with Scripture that there's going to be two dudes up in the eternal realm that have never died and never, you know, even before Christ. So this was before Christ. So that just kind of poses a problem. Chunked it out there to you. Hope you like it. Hope you helped. So... Let's go to where I want to talk tonight, and I want to talk to you in some slides you've already seen, but I want to talk to you from a Jewish perspective in this chapter, and it's hard for us as Gentiles to even wrap our mind around this religion called Judaism. It's very foreign to us, a, a, a religion of sacrifice, blood sacrifice, uh, a religion where if you didn't toe the line, you were dead. Uh, it's very difficult if you don't understand the Jewish Judaism. It's very hard to read the Old Testament and not come up with all these crazy analogies of God who kills babies and women and children and seemingly is just a murdering tyrant from the heavenly realm that just kills humans at will until you really get a good Jewish understanding. My opinion, this is an opinion, my opinion, chapter 11 is a pivotal point moving us that the rest of this book needs to be studied and thought of from a Jewish perspective. Uh, most of what's going to start happening now at mid-trib is going to be happening from the city of Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, primarily dealing with the Antichrist in the temple, in Jerusalem, uh, trying to kill the Jews with a hatred of the Jews, trying to be God, Satan trying to be God from Jerusalem with Jesus coming back to Jerusalem to put his feet on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem to set up a temple and rule and reign in Jerusalem and be the king forever on the throne of David from Jerusalem. That's the rest of the book. So it becomes very difficult. This is just, again, a thought. We have to try to interpret it outside of our American mentality. And all the questions we Americans ask, will we be there? Will the United States be part of this? Will, and I think it's best just to cut that off. Well, you know, if you love to study it, go. But, but for the sake of where we're going, to really turn a corner now, we've dealt with the church. In my perspective, the church has been raptured because God needed to finish the earthly work of the church. And now God is going to fulfill what we brought this slide up before God is going to fulfill his finishing to the Jews and the Gentile. My opinion, again, is that the rest of the book is going to pretty much clearly be Jewish. Even into the Millennial Kingdom, which is what I'm going to talk a lot about tonight, though it's a topic for later, 
I'm going to go ahead and intro you to it because there's a lot we want to talk about when we talk about this thousand-year reign of Jesus from Jerusalem over planet Earth. So even in that thousand-year reign, it's going to be very Jewish. And in the strangest of things, I think as American Christians, we forget that our Savior is a Jew. Uh, he, he was a, born a Jew. And, and here's the strange thing. The book of Ephesians says, You Gentiles were without God. You were without hope. You were a stranger to the covenant. And he wasn't even going to really save you. He was going to save the Jews. And they were his children, but they rejected him. So he gave you grace, and you're grafted in and adopted. So you need to be thankful that in some weird way, the Jews kind of gave Jesus the middle finger. And Jesus said, Well, if you're going to rebel against me, then I'm going to bring all these other people in to make you jealous. So you're here tonight to make the Jews jealous. But God has never forgotten about them, and that's what he's pushing for. And so what I'm going to do is go all over the Bible tonight and try to pull some, a lot of teachings together to, to maybe make sense of some things we kind of take out of context and make sense of them. So here's the thought for tonight. The thought is to find clarity in the middle chapters of Revelation, one must understand that the context and the content are best clarified from a Jewish mindset. I don't know if anybody in here is a Jew. I grew up with a little friend in the neighborhood. my best friend growing up. His family was Jewish. And uh, they had some pretty neat traditions and uh, how much they honored God and the, the prayers that they prayed, the Hebrew prayers that they prayed. But what we have to assume is Jesus is not coming back to redeem America. He's coming back for the Jew. And he's coming back to set up Jerusalem. And whether we like this thought or not, Jerusalem will be the capital of the world from henceforth evermore once Jesus sets on it. That will be our, our governmental capital where God will rule and reign. And that's where heaven will come to earth. And that will be a pretty much seat of authority. Now my opinion is God is pushing us there. Uh, he's pushing our thinking there. He's pushing the world there. So let's jump in and look at a scripture. Here's Daniel. We've talked about it before, but I'm bringing it back out to you. Daniel's prophesied this was that period of tribulation we looked at. A period of 70 sets of seven has been decreed. Here it is for your people. That's Daniel's people. That's the Jews. Your holy city. That's Jerusalem. And then to anoint the most holy place, that's the temple. So Daniel gives us a vision thousands of years prior that there's coming something God is going to do in Jerusalem with the Jews and with his temple that becomes a pivotal thought of where we're going tonight. I've put it in blue at the bottom because I'm going to talk about the temple of God tonight and why that matters to you and I. Daniel, uh, Revelation 11 that we just read through says this, Then I was given a measuring stick and told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar, and count the number of worshipers, but do not measure the outer courtyard, for it's been turned over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Again, there is this part in Revelation now that sees a temple, it sees worshipers, it sees nations, in Jerusalem. Now, to really grab hold of what's going on and the thought behind this is this temple he's talking about in Revelation is not here right now. There exists no temple for the Jews for Jesus to come back and rule right now. So obviously what he's looking toward is a prophetic time when a temple will be re-erected and the Jews will once again begin to offer sacrifice. What I'd like to do is just define this way that the Jew thinks bring it into some clarity for us. Here is the word tabernacle and sort of how this whole thing came about. This is in your notes. According to the Bible, the tabernacle was a meeting, a meaning of a residence or a dwelling place, also known the tent of congregation. This, this is going to be part of the stories of the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, all the way up until King Solomon, uh, they are going. God's presence, and I put it in, in yellow there, it's fill in the blank. The tabernacle was the portable earthly dwelling place of God, Yahweh. That's the Hebrew name for him. It was a portable place. It's like carrying God around in an RV. 
the presence of God would come down. But I want to tell you a little bit of history of why this is so important, and you can go study it, but this is a, a bite of history. God chose Abraham and wanted to have a relationship with Abraham. And he started communing with Abraham. Abraham was his people. And out of Abraham would come this nation called the Israel, the holy nation of God, the Jewish people, the Hebrews. We find in the book of Exodus now that they have been taken over by another nation called Egypt. They were there in slavery for about 400 years. They kept crying out to God, where are you when we need you? God heard their cry. God sends a guy named Moses. Moses goes in. Three to five million people follow Moses out of Egypt. And this is just the history of it. They all go out into the wilderness to worship God. And as in the wilderness, God said, good, I brought you to myself to worship me. Here's what I need you to do. I need you all to make booths or little tabernacles like tents to celebrate my presence bringing you out. So everybody, every family would build a little tent, a little dwelling place, because God wanted to dwell with his people. He desired to dwell with everybody. So in the story, Moses goes up to a mountain and gets some commandments because they said, whatever that guy God tells us to do, we will do. Number one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. We break it. First commandment, we broke it. So what did God do? Sorry, not going to live in y'all's tents anymore. I'm going to have my own tent. And so they devised something that he gave the pattern in Exodus 25 to Moses. And Moses began to get the, the tabernacle set up so God could have somewhere to dwell. Because he can't dwell with Leslie now. Because if he does, Leslie dies because he's holy and you're not. So God basically keeps his presence in a box. And if you touch the box, you die. And nobody can go see the box but one guy called a priest, a high priest. And he could go once a year, but to go to, go to the box to ask for forgiveness, he had to bring blood and sacrifice because that's kind of how this God set it up. You all are unholy. I'm super holy. The only way I cannot kill you is bring blood as a sacrifice to be forgiven. And so this system was set up where everywhere they would go, they would carry the little tabernacle with them. The Ark of the Covenant, they would set this nice tent up in the wilderness and then all the three million people would camp around it and they would do life. Uh, they probably should have done life for about 11 days, but there were 40 years this way. And here's the scripture. It says the sacrifice under this system, so this new system that God set up, meaning if, if I'm going to talk with you and live with you, you're going to have to kill some animals here. The sacrifice under the system was repeated again and again, year after year, but they never could perfectly cleanse those that worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped, the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, the feelings of guilt would have disappeared, but instead the sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins. So God wanted to teach this group of people how sinful they were. I guess they thought of themselves more highly than they ought. So God required them to kill an animal and bring it every year. And every year it just reminded them you're guilty. It didn't do anything. It didn't forgive them of their sins. It just kind of made them understand how guilty you are. That if there's sin, somebody has to die for it. And God is establishing a system. Here's what it looked like at a rendition. They would set up this tent... And there in the center is the altar, and then they would wash in the laver. And then once a year, the high priest would go into the inner tent. And inside that kind of tent, inside the walls, there was a holy place and then the most holy place. And the most holy place was where the ark of God was, the presence of God was, Indiana Jones kind of thing. You touch it, you die. You can't come in unholy. You can't approach me unholy. And if you do, you die. So the, the priest once a year would go into this tabernacle. Here's kind of the design of it. Uh, not going to teach on it tonight, but just to kind of give you an overview of how it looked internally. So internally, it kind of has a system of sacrifice. You would bring it to the altar of burnt offerings. Uh, the priest would kill your animal. They would bleed the blood out, they would burn the meat off, get rid of all the entrails, they would wash in the water, 
And then they would go through this ritual of sacrifice. It was prescribed by God, set up by God, and it was a system that God designed. Now this tent that traveled around and went around, God finally got to a point to raise it up and say, we're no longer going to be a traveling God. We're going to just set it in stone. And he appears to Solomon, who was King David's son through Bathsheba. And Solomon kind of took it to a new level. According to the Bible narrative, Solomon's temple, also known as the first temple, was a temple in Jerusalem built under King Solomon's reign, and it became a permanent resting place. It's not a tent anymore. As a matter of fact, it was so expensive, I think he had to actually give away nine cities to a king just to help pay for it. It was such an elaborate thing that Solomon built, but he built it to be permanent. Now, here's a strange thing of where we're going. Does this system matter to God? Yes. It's all the way through the Old Testament, these sacrifices and these priests and these blood offerings that basically to us today are so foreign because we don't even have to talk about it because we say we don't need this anymore. We have Jesus. Jesus gave his blood. Thank God I don't have to go bring a bird to kill it to be forgiven. Here's a picture, a rendition, an artist's rendition of what Solomon's temple looked like. Uh, so you can see we went from a tent in the middle of a wilderness to a pretty incredible uh, building and edifice built like none other. But Solomon takes it a step further to teach us something about the temple that really uh, helps us understand why this even applies to me and you tonight. Because that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to take something so archaic that means nothing to our generation and you're going to hopefully walk out and go, it means a ton to me. Here's what he prayed in a prayer. He, he dedicated this temple and Solomon has this beautiful prayer like it's the whole chapter. And this is pulled out of his prayer. Listen to what he says about it. In the future, foreigners who do not belong to your people, there's the word Gentiles, that's who they were. They were foreigners. They did not belong to the Hebrews. They will hear of you. They will come from distant lands because of your name. And they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your powerful arm. And when they pray toward this temple, you will hear from heaven where you live and grant what they ask for. In this way, the people of the earth, listen now, will come to know and fear you. As the people of Israel do, they too will know this temple I have built honors your name. So now he connects this Jewish ritual of animal sacrifice that it will be an object lesson for nations in the future to know God and to fear God and to know how powerful he is and to know how strong he is and they will know his name through this temple. So even though we're going yuck, you know, at all the bloodshed and all the cattle they're killing, all the goats they're killing, all the lambs they're killing, that's so Middle Eastern foreign to us in America, and especially with PETA here in America, we could never get away with coming to Believer's Church, bringing a bird or a lamb, walking in the door, murdering that lamb, putting the blood everywhere, and saying, you're forgiven. We would get arrested, thrown in jail for cruelty to animals. But God established a system. What is the system? It's not cruelty to animals. It's coming to teach you how to fear God, how to honor His name, and to understand that there is a judgment that comes of death on sin. Alright? Here's a little bit of history. You don't have to write all this. You're welcome. Just the first line. Sacrifice in this temple was the predominant mode of divine service in the first temple. It was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Seventy years later, a number of Jews go back to Israel. This is the book of Ezra, the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. And they built a second temple. It was built on the exact same site as the first temple of Solomon. 
and they begin to make sacrifices to God again. These sacrifices that had been long left off and the, and the temple destroyed, Ezra, the book of Ezra, the book of Nehemiah, man, let's go back and build the wall, let's resume, let's rebuild the temple, they do it. And so that's the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. They rebuild, they start having sacrifices again. And then during the first century, Herod, that's when Jesus lived. You remember King Herod, the Roman uh, appointed head of Judea, made a substantial modification to that temple and the surrounding mountain expanding the temple and that became known as Herod's temple. It's when Jesus walks in and throws the money changers out and he's ticked and he said, this is God's house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of thieves. This is the place where Jesus walked in to do that. However, 70 years, about 27 years after the death of Jesus, that temple is destroyed. And from 70 AD until present, there has been no temple anymore. There, ha there has been no place on this sacred site whereby the Jewish people can worship Yahweh the way they've been told for centuries to worship Yahweh. It doesn't really seem like it would matter to you and me. It's like, get over it. We don't want to kill. Jesus has died for you. You don't even need to kill anything. But the Jews don't believe in Jesus being the Messiah. So they still, in their Jewish mentality, need to have a temple to offer sacrifices so they can bring the Messiah to them. So the history behind it is Solomon made a permanent dwelling. Herod kind of amped it up a little bit and then it was destroyed. Here's a picture to show you Herod put it in. He did a marvelous job. <laughs> he really took Solomon's temple to a whole other level. It was a show place for sure. But just so you understand the history of it and don't think that Revelation 11 doesn't apply to us, now here's where the application comes in. Here's the history. To this day, Traditional Jews pray three times a day for the temple's restoration. I know you and I may not care about it, but the Jews want their temple. Over the centuries, the Muslims, who have eventually took over control of Jerusalem, built two mosques on the Temple Mount, the site of the two Jewish temples. This is no coincidence. It's a common Islamic custom to build mosques on the sites of other people's holy places. Since any attempt to level these mosques would lead to an international Muslim holy war, jihad, against Israel, the temple cannot be rebuilt in the foreseeable future. So this is modern history right here. The Jews want their temple mount back, but the Muslims have built on top of it saying that's our sacred mountain. And the Jews say, no, it's my sacred mountain. We want to build a temple. And the Muslims say, I'm sorry, we're not giving the land back to you. And they fight. And if you go there today, um, here's what it looks like. This is where Herod's temple once sat in history. This is called the Dome of the Rock. This is the most holy site for the Muslim faith. So the Islamic faith has now sat on top of this temple of God in Jerusalem right now. It's there to this day. It's a very holy place. You, you can't just walk up to it. I know my mom's been there to go on it. Very, all kind of rules. You can't pray there. Uh, if you go to pray, you cannot bow and pray. It's against their religious customs. And so this is a very holy thing sitting in the middle of Jerusalem where Solomon's temple used to be and where Herod's temple used to be but now it's been captured by the Islamic faith and this is our holy place. You would think, just get over it. Buy a piece of land a mile down the road and let's get on with the show. But to understand how the Jews think, it has to be at the place that was designed by God on this mountain at this spot because this is where the most holy sacred temple that we had was. Here is an aerial view of it. This is a modern-day picture. If you look down in the bottom corner, you will see what is called the Wailing Wall. It is where Jews are allowed to go and pray. And what they pray for, I hear every day, is for their temple to be restored and for Messiah to come. 
I know in America we're more concerned about our coffee being hot and me getting $15 an hour raise, but there are literal people on planet Earth who go to this wall, you can see the little cutout part, who stand at that wall for hours and wail. It's called the wailing wall, and they're wailing for the Messiah to return to redeem them. So there is a group of people who are hungry for Jesus to return while maybe in America Christianity we're just hungry. So hurry up and get on so I can go eat lunch. <laughs> but, but this is happening right now. I have a picture in my office sent to me by a, a missionary in Jerusalem and this is a Jewish woman praying with an Israeli soldier at the Wailing Wall for the Messiah to come. And they've banded together in unity an Israel soldier with a Uzi on his side because of the tension there. And then an Israeli woman who's praying at the wall. Maybe a man, I don't know, I can't really tell. But uh, it's true. It, it's, it's there, it's happening, and there is a war. Now here's the problem at hand. Revelation 11 tells John to go measure this temple... But it's not even there, so what we now can assume, there is coming a third temple. I don't know how it's going to come down, but it's going to go up right at the Dome of the Rock. I don't know if it'll happen through war. I don't know if it'll happen with a divine thing. But there are people who are trying to get it to happen right now. In the party of the, I hope I pronounce it right, the Zehuts, uh, they're trying to build the third temple. This came out in 2019. They're trying to build the third temple as quickly as possible. But they know it's almost an impossibility because to get the land would cause a jihad. It would probably cause a worldwide war to break out. And, you know, it's, it's amazing if you want to read what all is going on in Jerusalem right now in Israel. It's very prophetic. But I, I share this with you just so you know that what we're reading here in Revelation 11 is not some archaic thousand-year-old piece of literature that means nothing to us today. It is the prophetic call of something that's coming. There is coming a temple. And then my question tonight is, why does that matter to me? I'm a Christian. I don't do sacrifices. I have the blood of Jesus. I don't need the blood of animals. And so now I want to take you in the next 25 minutes on why this temple has to come back and what it means to me and you and what we will be doing. Revelation 11, 1 and 2 again, same scripture. I was told to go and measure the temple of God, the worshipers, and the nations. Here's the question. What's the purpose of the third temple being rebuilt? If Jesus has made the final and complete blood sacrifice of himself to make humans right with God. Why do we need another temple where sacrifices would be made? Animals would be sacrificed. Blood sacrifices. The ashes of a heifer. The purification of the temple. Why do we need all that archaic Jewish, Jewish kind of stuff? We're the church. We, don't, we even teach you. You don't have to bring sacrifices. Jesus has already died for you. There, this is the whole book of Hebrews. There is no other sacrifice to be made but Jesus Christ. So why all of a sudden does John see this third temple and put such an emphasis that the devil wants this temple because this is the place where the Antichrist will set up his image. We'll get there you know, as we get into the next chapters. It's kind of giving you what's coming. The devil wants this temple because this is the sign of God's rulership. And if I get the temple and put my image in it, it says to the Jewish people, I am God. And that's what he's going for, God. So what I want to do is to tell you why this temple is important now. I've put a, and I'll let you screenshot it or do whatever, and I'll leave it up there a while. But it's to cause you to see what is the use of another temple, because I want to tell you where I'm going to take you tonight. For a thousand years in the millennial kingdom, we will be making animal sacrifices again. For a thousand years, and I want to tell you why I believe this to be so and why it's so important. So to the left of the screen, we start out with human beings, Adam and Eve, the very beginning book of Genesis. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, something strange happened. God makes them uh, animal skins, assuming that God killed the animal, shed the blood, 
and then he took the fig leaf and he gave him animal skins. So at the very beginning of chapter 3 of Genesis, we already have blood sacrifice. Uh, God said, here's the sin, I'm going to kill an animal, cover you with skin, and so we start out that way. As we go through the book of Genesis, out of this group of people comes a holy people. The holy people that comes out of it is the selection of Abraham. God picks Abraham and says, I'm going to turn you into an entire nation of people as numerous as the stars of the sky. And so God picks this guy named Abraham, and in the picking of Abraham, God does this and cuts a covenant again, and more blood is shed. So what we're finding out about this God of the eternal realm, he's very interested in blood. It's gory, it's dirty, it's nasty, it's sickening, but there's something about it he just adores. In his holiness, he loves the blood. Out of that holy people, as you read through the book of Genesis, you come through a group of people that become Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had 12 children, he turned his name to Israel, and we come up with the birth of a nation. The book, by the time we get to the end of the book of Genesis, an entire nation, from Adam and Eve we started, but by the end of the book we now have an entire nation of people. That entire nation of people is part of a system of animal sacrifice and worship to God. There's the word animal sacrifice at the temple, the tabernacle that I just showed you. This group of people would travel around and to get forgiven of overlooked sins and and pay a penance for sins, they would bring sacrifices to this temple and this nation of bloody people was birthed. Kind of a motley crew of people. Out of that... Holy nation, because God chose one group of people, it divided humanity. Humanity became divided into two segments of people. This is the the slide I showed you at the beginning. Into the Jews that were called a holy nation who belonged to God. And then the rest of the people on planet earth were called the Gentile nations. They were referred to as the heathen. Ephesians chapter 2, they're referred to as strangers, aliens, without God and without hope. In other words, there was really nothing they had going for them with God. They were totally isolated from God. God really wasn't doing anything with them. That's why you don't read much about them other than they come in and try to mess with God's holy people. So God is working with this holy people called the Jews while trekking along beside the Jews are all these nations called the heathen Gentile nations who are persecuting the Jews, killing the Jews, taking over the Jews, enslaving the Jews all the way through the Old Testament. This group of people called the Gentiles will show up in Matthew chapter 25 divided into two groups of people. They're called the goat nations and the sheep nations. So as you read Matthew 25, it's not Christians and non-Christians. It's all the nations who are called goat and sheep nations. And the sheep aren't Christians. The sheep nations are the nations that treat the Jews good through the tribulation period. And the goat nations are the nations that treat them bad in the tribulation period, which is where we are now. But they're divided. A third nation comes around called the church. I've spent a lot of time on this. I won't belabor it. This was also a holy nation, but made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And they were called the church. But they too had to have sacrifice. Their sacrifice was the Son of God. The Son of God shed His blood, meaning you need no more animals. There's nothing you need to do. But my blood, watch this now, this is important. My blood that I shed, I did not shed it for the earthly tabernacle. I went up to heaven and I shed it to the heavenly tabernacle. Because if you're going to come live with me, Leslie, the blood has to be shed in the tabernacle or you die when you get here. So I had to purify God's home so when Geary gets up here... And he believes in me, this blood purifies Geary so he doesn't die and drop dead in the presence of God. So even though in the Old New Testament it's like, yeah, we're done with the temple, it was destroyed, there is this heavenly temple. We're going to read this in a minute. That is the exact replica of the one Moses built. 
So it wasn't just some idea God had. What God did is he had this heavenly temple and said, I really need to teach these rebellious humans something. Build this thing on planet earth to teach them what I need to teach them. What do you want to teach them? That they are emphatically unholy, they are sinful, and the only way to be in my presence is blood or they die. So this natural, dirty, nasty system of Judaism was a display of a heavenly object lesson of what was already in heaven. So when Jesus came to die for me, the reason I don't need blood sacrifices of animals is he took the blood and went back up to heaven and purified it. And now by believing in him, I realize how sinful I am. I don't need a sacrificial system because he is my sacrifice. I don't need to bring a lamb. He is my lamb. That's why faith in Jesus is the only way to have life. It's the only way is that blood of Jesus to have life. The question becomes, if the blood is enough, why do we need this temple again? Why isn't that just enough? If we believe in it, then why the duality again? Why the two, why the blood here that's supposed to cleanse everybody and then all of a sudden here comes this temple thing again? I'll tell you why. After the church is raptured and we go through the tribulation period, there are people who are still left on planet earth. And not everybody was a Christian, not everybody got raptured, and not everybody on the planet died. There's still people who exist who don't believe in God, didn't want to believe in God, but somehow they survived the seven years of hell. And they're alive. Well, God's not going to just kill them. God has to do something with them. So what does he do? Well, the church has been brought to him. And we, according to the book of Peter, are called a holy nation and a what? A royal priesthood. I want to tell you why this matters. Why would God call me and you a priest? Priests represent sinful behavior to God and priests offer sacrifices to God and the church is called this. We're royal priests. So here we come with this millennial kingdom. I put the little small crown over it. That is the thousand years where we're headed. And in that thousand years, earthly animal sacrifices kick off again. And they begin to have to sacrifice. Why? Because all the Jews and the Gentiles that made it through are still sinful people. They've never been born again. They're not part of the church. But the Gentiles get in because they were the sheep nations. So God lets a core of Gentiles come into the kingdom. So he's on the throne and he says to the church, Are y'all ready to rule and reign with me? And we say, Yes, we are. He says, good, here's who we're going to rule and reign. All of the nations that treated my children, Israel, good, let them in for free. So all these sinful people, these people that have nothing to do with God, they get to come in and live on planet earth for a thousand years. To my knowledge, they don't die, and if they do, they die old. And in that thousand years, the Jewish people that God loves get to come in because they're his people. So there's an entire races and nations of people who are here who've never been born again. They're not part of the church. They may or may not believe in Jesus and they've never been redeemed. They're human, just like you. But they will not die at age 80 because Satan has been locked away for a thousand years and death has been staved off and not thrown into the lake of fire yet. So even a hundred-year-old kid will be thought to be young. And in this time, we've been taught that nobody marries in heaven. There is no marriage. This is not heaven. So all of these people down at the bottom, the Jews and the Gentiles, marry, have children, birth babies. But because Jesus is ruling, God is the big crown, is still in heaven. Jesus, the little crown, is here on the planet ruling. And the church has been dispersed to help him rule. These sinful people 
who do not know him and who will be born, the children that will be born during this time, have to be taught why there was a need for a Lamb of God. They have to be taught why sin is so sinful. So the animal sacrifices kick up again so that these people understand this God sitting on the throne is holy, you're not holy, and you're required to bring a sacrifice to Him. Now here's where it gets really interesting. Let's dig into some scriptures and see some scriptures in the matter. Isaiah 56 I will bring them to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, and I'll fill them with joy in my house of prayer. I'll accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices because my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. For the sovereign Lord who brings back the outcast of Israel says, I bring others too besides my people Israel. In other words, this temple of sacrifice isn't just for the Jews because Herod's temple was basically Jews only. You couldn't be a Gentile and come offer sacrifices, really. I mean, it was primarily a Jewish thing. But he says, this is going to be for everybody, for all the nations. They're going to come and offer me burnt offerings. Jeremiah 33, this is the one that kind of threw me for a mental loop for a long time. For this is what the Lord says, David will have a descendant sitting on the throne of Israel forever. That's Jesus. And there will what? Always be Levitical priests who offer burnt offerings, grain offerings, and sacrifices to me. That is a strange thought. That they're always going to be offering things to Jesus. Burnt offerings for sin and for rebellion. And again, it, it throws the Christian mind for a loop because we're looking at it from a Christian perspective. There needs to be no sacrifice. Jesus is a sacrifice. There is no way to get forgiveness of sins except Jesus. That's because you're looking at it through the Christian belief that he is your lamb and your Messiah. However, if you reject that notion and you say he's not my lamb and my Messiah and my sacrifice in the millennial kingdom, you will be required by him to bring sacrifices of lambs and goats to show how sinful you are so you'll understand how holy he is. Amen. And I'll tell you how it's all going to end in the end. Zechariah 14, this is again mind-blowing. In the end, the enemies of Jerusalem who survived the plague will go up to Jerusalem each year to worship the king the Lord of Heaven's armies, and to celebrate the Feast of Shelters. There's those, those habitations, tabernacles again. Any nation that refuses to come to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of Heaven's armies will have no rain. So for a thousand years, these nations that are ruling, these nations that are here part of uh, this thousand-year reign, are required to bring burnt offerings and sacrifices to God as a sign and an object lesson to teach them about their guilt. You are guilty. You didn't believe in me before, but now I'm going to teach you and your children, and you will teach your children's children, Daddy, why are we offering these animals to this person? And it will say, because we are sinful and this is to pay for the sins and to remind us how sinful we are. Alright? So that's the thought behind the sacrifices that are coming. <clears throat> he says this in Matthew 25. But the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with Him and He'll sit on His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered in His presence and He will separate the people as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goat He'll place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. I just threw that in there so you could see what I was talking about. That there'll be a nations of people who get into the kingdom and into his presence not because they're born again. They get to come in because they survived. And this is not eternity yet. You, you must separate. There's going to be a thousand years we live on planet earth before we even get into eternity. So I think too, opinion... I think this is what Paul means when he says if you're a homosexual, 
a gossip, a greedy person, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. I think this is what he's talking about. The thousand-year reign of God, not eternal life. Because it would really be weird that somebody who gossips that believes in Jesus doesn't get eternal life. I'll talk about that later. In fact, Hebrews 9.22, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is zero forgiveness. Just so you understand what's going on. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. So this group of people, Gentiles and Jews, who are now in the reign of God and the temple of God is reestablished and they're bringing these sacrifices, it is to remind them for a thousand years, for one thousand years to remind you that your sins must be punished. So every new baby that's born, every teenager that comes through the thousand years, they get this Old Testament sacrificial system. Why? Uh, Remember, the two temples, the heavenly one with the blood here, and now the earthly one, the third one here, that still requires blood. Remember, this blood is eternal. It's already been shed. But down here with these people who are in this kingdom, they have to start bringing sacrifices. There has to be blood. So you've got the two still going side by side. This may make a little sense to you. But you're not like that. You are a chosen people talking to the church. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result... You show others the goodness of God. For He called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. My belief is we use this a lot for today to witness to people. Oh, you're a holy nation, man. Go go show forth the praises of God. This is not just about what you're going to do tomorrow. This is also prophetically looking to what you will be doing through the millennial kingdom. You are going to be a priest You are going to be a holy nation. Now watch, I'm going to try to pull it out. And other people, because of the church, will see the goodness of God. So here we are in the millennial kingdom. There's the church, the king and the priest. There's the Jewish nations and the Gentiles. Follow me here, I don't want to lose you. Again, this is my opinion. It sure does make sense to me. The Jews and the Gentiles, because they've never been redeemed, they've never been born again, but they're still here, they're having children, they're required to come to the King Jesus and bring animal sacrifices. My belief is that as they come and as we, the church, rule and reign, and as we are kingdom of priests, those children that are born and the people that are here unredeemed will ask this of us. Why is that girl there named Victoria Kate so different than me? She's different, Daddy. Why is she different? And the father will say, because she has been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and made holy and given a new body. Why does she not look like... Why can she disappear? Why can she go from one part of the planet to the next? Because she put her faith in the Lamb of God and He redeemed her body and has given her a glorious body fashioned like His body. But son, you didn't get that. You were born in a time where your father rejected Him and now we have to bring the Lamb to pay the price of what she believed that He paid the price. But now we're forced to do it because we're mere humans. And we are being judged for our rejection of Him for a thousand years. If you want to know how freaky this gets, it even gets a little bit uh, more interesting as we go through it. i got to find it. A little more interesting as we go through it. Ephesians 2. And we love to preach this. I don't ever think we think it through to the end. For he, Jesus, raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him where? In the heavenly realms because we're united with Christ. Now watch. Why? Because God wants to point to the church, to the future ages, 
as an example of his incredible grace and kindness toward you as shown in all that he's done for you who've been united with him. Do you see what's going on here? You are going to be an object lesson through the millennial kingdom of the grace of God. You're not wasting your time here. Every prayer you pray, every offering you give, every moment you fast, every time you seek Him, you are earning in the kingdom the right to rule and reign with Him. And you will stand in the millennial kingdom as a redeemed joint heir of Jesus Christ, having your body fashioned like His glorious body. You are now eternal. You live. You're not affected by anything. And you will be ruling these natural human people. And as you rule the natural people, God will use you and point to you and say, Elijah is an example of my extreme grace. Why do we have to bring this animal to you? Because you are dead in your sins and you're human and you must bring it to me or you will die because you're not holy. Well, what about that guy there? Why does he not have to bring an animal? Oh, that guy on the end there, he's Elijah. He's a joint heir with me. He put his faith in my sacrifice. And my sacrifice redeemed him. And now he's a joint heir with me. And he rules and reigns with me. Would you also like to rule and reign with me and put your faith in me so that you never have to bring another sacrifice? And they will either say yes or no. But he becomes an example You'll be walking around in a redeemed body with other humans who aren't redeemed. you know how weird that's going to be? It's like Marvel Comics have come home. You'll just be walking around and think, man, I need to get to the Middle East. Boom, you're gone. You just disappear. You're in the Middle East. People are like, where did he go? Well, he's not human. Well, he is human, but he's a redeemed, glorified human. He, he possesses the, the nature of God because his DNA carries the nature of God because he put his faith in the lamb that's on the throne. But your daddy didn't. That's why I have to bring this goat because I didn't trust him. And I'm still required by law to do it or I die. So there's the lamb on the cross versus the lamb now of earth that we got to re-sacrifice this thing. But don't ever think that you're just used up and God doesn't have a plan for you. You're going to be an object lesson. God is going to show people how necessary it is. Now here's the weird thing. We're going to end here. Open your Bible to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. Uh, go to Revelation 20, and then we'll come to 21. Verse 7. When the thousand years have come to an end, Satan will be let out of his prison. Why? What the Sam Hill? You got him locked up? You're going to let him go? What the garbage you letting him go for? I'm letting him go... Because I don't want anyone to do life with me who doesn't want to do life. And for a thousand years, I've forced them to sacrifice to me. And I don't want anybody to come into eternal life who I've had to force to sacrifice to me. I want them to willingly put their faith in me. Well, what are you going to do to make sure willingly? Because it seems like you're ruling with an iron fist. I have been ruling with an iron fist. I've been telling them to bring me offerings. And if they don't, it doesn't rain. If they don't bring me animals, they're cursed. I've been telling them that for a thousand years. However, they really think I'm a tyrant. But I've used the church to show them I'm not a tyrant. I'm a very gracious God. But because they're humans and there's millions of them now because for a thousand years they've been multiplying, I think it only fair that I do for them what I did for Adam and Eve and for you all. I need to give them a shot to either receive me or reject me. And I've given them a thousand years to show them how unholy they are, so it's going to be fair when I give them a shot. So he loses Satan. Verse 8, he'll go out and deceive the nations called Magog and Gog, in every corner of the earth. He will gather them together for a battle, a mighty army as numberless as the sand along the seashore. 
And I saw him go up on the broad plain. They surrounded God's people. That's us and the Jews, the holy city. They surrounded the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and attacked them and consumed them. And the devil that deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of fire burning with sulfur to join the beast and the false prophet. And there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You see what God is doing here. He's fair to you. And at the end of a thousand years, you would think, who in their right mind could live with Jesus for a thousand years? With, I mean, just under his rule, who, who, would, who would reject him? Lots of people. You would think right now who would reject him, but we do it all the time. So we've been doing it 2,000 years and still reject him. We've been doing planet Earth for 6,000 and still reject him. So don't get all holy and think, oh, a thousand years with Jesus... Everybody's going to receive him. Almost all of them turn and say, we're sick of this dude telling us what to do. We're going to kill him and take over and rule. And Jesus is like, yeah, no, not going to happen. And so here's the end of, the, end of it. Verse 15, And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And I saw a new heaven. And a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared and the sea was gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. So now here comes the eternal sacrifice. The eternal home of God is getting ready to come down. The place where the eternal blood was shed is now coming out. What is about to happen is the earthly sacrifices will stop and now the eternal sacrifice poured in heaven is what is counted. And we will forever, this is where eternity starts. You only get into eternity by the blood of Jesus Christ. You can get in the millennial kingdom by the blood of an animal, but you do not get an eternal life except the blood of Jesus Christ. It's eternal. Here's what it says. He says in verse 5, And there was one sitting on the throne that said, Look, I'm making everything new. And he said, Write this down, for it is trustworthy and true. And he said, It is finished. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. And to you who are victorious, you'll inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. I want to give you a thought at the end of Revelation. When he sees this beautiful city coming down from heaven, what does he make note of? I don't see a temple anymore. Because the temple now is God and the Lamb. And this is why Jesus says the only way for eternal life is his sacrifice. Because once eternity starts, there is no more animal sacrifice that can get you eternal life. It can get you through the kingdom, but it cannot get you eternal life. And he says the lamb is now the temple. And God, in a strange way, and I want to teach this as we get into it, through the thousand years... The reason the Father stays in heaven and puts the Son here to rule is because God cannot come down to earth because He's so holy, everybody would die. So He backs off and lets the Son, through animal sacrifice, keep them alive whereby they may know His grace. But at the end of a thousand years everybody's moved away that doesn't believe, everybody's thrown into the lake of fire, the lamb now stands and says, the sacrifice is paid, my blood has been shed, and at that moment, God the Father comes down to dwell with us forever. Amen. Why? Because we're holy now. And we're holy by the blood of Jesus Christ. That hurt my head. I hope it helped you. Here's the thought. The temple, Revelation 11, was a place of sacrifice, remembrance, and honor of God's name and presence. For this reason, the temple will once again be rebuilt to usher in Christ's rule during the millennial kingdom, serving as an object lesson of humanity's sin and God's holiness. And the church will serve as an object lesson of God's grace. So that's that in a nutshell, what I tried to teach you.
I know it may be far-fetched and out there, but I challenge you to listen to it when it comes out. Study it more. Love to hear your take on it. But I think it makes sense of why I'm called a priest, why I have a redeemed body, why am I an object lesson, because God's going to use us to teach a great lesson. Amen? Here's the final thought of the night. It's very important. How could you sit there with teaching that good and not give money so I can have an Oreo? So you feel free to give to help pay for all the babysitters that are next door wishing we would hurry up and go. I thank you. I love you. I'll see you tomorrow uh, next week for Revelation 12. Thank you so much for joining us on the Believer's Church YouTube channel. If you would like more information about Believer's Church, you can visit mybelieverschurch.com. If there is anything that you need prayer for, please email us at amen at mybelieverschurch.com. Be sure to check back next week for a brand new message.